Romans 9, 6 through 13. This is uh, getting into some of the controversial sections of Romans 9. We're going to dip into some of the harder portions of the book of Romans here this week and next week, uh, especially next week. However, I think these texts are helpful for every Christian to know and understand and to feed upon. And the reason I believe that is because it's in God's word. And all scripture is profitable and good for us, no matter how hard it is uh, sometimes to receive. So the Gospel Center Community Discussion Guides are coming around right now. Uh, These will help you in your groups this week to stimulate discussion, to go deeper into the text itself. Uh, These function as a good um, study Bible or commentary on the text, and they will help facilitate a deeper study this week. So let's read Romans 9, 6 to 13 together. And we're going to do a lot of background work tonight because a lot of Old Testament texts are referenced today. And I'm going to not assume that everyone in this room is very familiar with the book of Genesis. Okay, so I'm going to assume that and we're going to reference all of the text reference in Romans 9, 6 to 13 here. But also we're just going to unpack it verse by verse by verse seek to understand it, and seek to make good personal application. So let's read together, either from your own Bible or from the screen here, Romans 9, 6 to 13. Paul writes to the church at Rome, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born or had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, if you were here last week, You remember that Paul is concerned that the end of Romans chapter 8, which said there's nothing in all creation that could separate us from the love of God, Paul in his mind thinks to himself, well, then I have to deal with this objection. What about the ethnically Jewish people who were promised the Messiah and to be God's people and promise the land, and they have all these promises. What about them if most of them are not believing in Jesus? What does that mean for us who are Christians who are currently believing in Jesus? If the Jewish people who were the recipients of the promises are not believing in the Messiah, did God either drop them 
Or did God's promise to them fail? That's the question. And so Paul then journeys into three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, to answer this problem, to answer this objection. What do we do with Jewish unbelief ethnically? What do we do with it? And so he, in 1 through 3, Romans 9, 1 through 3, uh, displays his heart for the Jewish people. He wishes they could be saved. He himself even wishes he could be accursed if it would mean their salvation. And then in verses 4 and 5, he recounts their privileges as uh, a chosen nation, the people of Israel. And then Paul in verse 6 goes on to say, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not, no, that's not the issue here. God's word has not failed. And his answer is, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What does this mean? Now, you know that Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so Jacob has 12 children, and those 12 children have large families, which become tribes. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And his answer at first here is, it's not all those who are descended from Jacob that belong to this, if you will, true Israel. This truly chosen race. This truly chosen people. In other words, his argument is, we are not born ethnically into the family of God. We are born again into the family of God. Now, that's not explicitly stated here, but that is implied. Because it's very common in Jesus' day to hear, because we are Jews, because we come from Abraham, we are God's people, we have nothing to worry about. It was often said that Abraham stands outside the gates of Hades or hell and and does not allow any circumcised male to enter in. So there was this general belief that if you were Jewish, if you were descended from Abraham, you were automatically in as God's people. And Paul says here in verse 6, no. It's only those who are the children of the promise or the children of faith, as we will learn later who are God's chosen people. And so we could think of it like this. Israel is this large, massive people, but inside of Israel, there's this saved Israel, this children of God in the real sense, uh, in the truest sense. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, listen, we'll hear people say things like this. Everyone's a child of God. True or false? False. True in one sense, false in another sense, okay? True in the sense that everyone finds their life and origin from God. He is the creator of every single person, hands down, period. In that sense, God is their father. He's the only God there is. He's the only creator there is. There is no other options. Therefore, in that sense, they are God's children. And every single person, no matter how they made their way into the world, are in his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. However, in the truest sense, in the adoption sense that we learned of last week and in Romans 8, not everyone is that kind of child of God. Not everyone is adopted into his 
chosen beloved family. That is reserved for some and not all. Now, we would also call those the church. We would say, this is the church, the people of God, the chosen of God. But you know what's interesting about that? There is this thing called the church that's visible, and not everybody who's in a church building or connected to a church is actually the the true church. Because people come and go, people make professions of faith, then they drop their professions of faith. I have many, many friends, sadly, who were once on fire for God and now can't stand the God of the Bible. They speak very ill against him. Yet at one time, they were visibly a part of the church. And yet time has shown that they were not really the people of God. So in the same way, this is how it was with Israel. There was a remnant of true belief or those who had faith, those who were the chosen inside this larger reality of Israel. And so that's Paul's answer. No, it's not as though God's promise to Abraham has failed, that I will be your God and your descendants will be my people and they will inherit a land. It's not as though that promise has failed. No, because it was never to the whole. It was only to some within the whole. Are you with me? Excellent. Now we can move on. So verse seven, he continues, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And you see the quotes there because uh, Paul is quoting Genesis 21, 12. And here's what it says. God is speaking to Abraham. And if you know the story, uh, Abraham is very old. He can't have children, yet God made promises to him. And so he is going to make the promise happen on his own. And his wife gives Abraham her servant as a second wife. And he says, she says rather, perhaps I can have children by her. Now, this was a common practice in the time of Abraham. Okay, this is very strange in our day, common in that day. And so he marries, if you will, Hagar, who is uh, Sarah's servant, and she does have a son. His name is Ishmael. And God says, no, he is not the child that I promised that you will have a multitude of people from. And so this is why he says here, uh, God says to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through, here's the quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here's the context. In Genesis 21, uh, Ishmael is, if you will, making fun of Isaac and Hagar does something ill towards Sarah. I don't know if she was uh, mocking her because of her old age and having this child, or we don't know exactly the context, but Sarah wants Ishmael and Hagar out. Abraham, do away with them. I don't want them near us. I don't want them having any part of an inheritance with my son, Isaac. And so God, Abraham's disturbed about this because Ishmael really is his son and he loves him and he doesn't want to see him go away. It's his boy. But God says to him, listen, don't be displeased because of the boy. The boy is Ishmael and because of your slave woman. Okay. Now 
wife, but yet she was the servant of Sarah. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, I'm going to create a people through Isaac and not Ishmael. That's what's happening here. And so, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Here's the argument in verse 7, guys. Listen close. Did you know that Abraham had more children than just Ishmael and Isaac? In fact, when Sarah dies, he marries another woman named Ketara, and he has like five kids with her. And he's mega old at that time. It's pretty amazing. And so, <laughs> it's, anything's possible, Eddie. With God, all things are possible, right? <laughs> and so, the argument is, look, Abraham had a lot of kids, and God didn't have all of them as the promised child to bring a people through, to fulfill his promise to Abraham through. It was through Isaac alone. And that's why he quotes Genesis 21, 12 here. He says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, just because they came from him biologically. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Children from Abraham's body, the flesh. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, what does it mean, uh, children of promise? Well, we can look in Genesis 18 and see this promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah. Remember, she has no children at this time. She can't bear children, which is why she gave uh, Hagar to Abraham. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. You remember the story. Uh, it's a normal day in the life of Abraham and Sarah, uh, and three visitors show up, and one of them is a pre incarnate manifestation of Jesus, and two angels. And somehow Abraham picks up on this, that these are not regular travelers here. One of them is the Lord of glory. And so the Lord, Jesus, pre-incarnate, says to Abraham this, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Remember, no houses during this time. They're living in tents. And so you can imagine these, these visitors show up. He sends servants right away, kill, kill some animals, make some food. Let's get a meal out here. And after they eat, that's when this conversation happens. And so she hears her name, and you could just see her right inside the tent door listening. What's going on? I hear my name. And, and probably... Jesus was intentional in saying it so she could hear it, knowing she was there listening. And then if we skip to verse 14, she laughs and she doesn't believe. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. This is the child of promise that we are talking about here in verse 8 and 9. 
This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Speaking of Isaac. Okay? Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. Now, we, we will get to why is Paul going here? What's his line of reasoning? What's his line of argument here? We're still in the background part, okay? Verse 9. Sorry, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Okay, and I'm going to wait on verse 13. That's our, that's our kind of last text. We'll wait on that. What's going on here is Paul is arguing that salvation is not by birth, but rather it's by miraculous intervention. God having to intervene in order to create life. That's what happened with Sarah. It's not about being born ethnically, or to be Jewish, but rather it's about God intervening. That's what happened with Isaac and Sarah. Now, what's interesting here is, again, the common idea of the day when this was written, especially with Jewish people, was that if you were Jewish, you were right with God. If you were circumcised, you were right with God. We can see this in Matthew chapter 3, 7 to 10. This will be relevant, so pay attention. John the Baptist is baptizing. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He is Jesus' cousin. And he also was miraculously conceived, if you remember his story. And so he's out baptizing in the wilderness, in the desert, and massive amounts of people are coming to him. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, Pharisees, Sadducees, probably the ruling body of the Jews at the time. Okay, that's Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests make up the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body of the Jewish people. So they're coming, the rulers and authorities are coming to check on John the Baptist. The people think he's a prophet. He's gaining this massive crowd. So they're coming out to where he's baptizing to see what's going on. He said to them, you brood of vipers, (laughs) you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I love it. So so John the Baptist is a fiery preacher of repentance in the wilderness. And he looks at the power structure, if you will, right in the eye, and he calls them snakes. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In other words, it's coming for you. (laughs) Who warned you to flee? Are you here to be baptized and repent? And then he says this, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And verse 9, here it is, friends, ready? And do not presume to say to yourselves, this is their defense, he knows it, we have Abraham as our father, not going to save you from the wrath to come. We have Abraham as our father. And then he says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones, the stones of the Jordan River, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a lot packed in there. Uh, He's basically saying that God is about to do something new, and he's going to raise up people of God out of stones. Now, who is that? That's us, Gentiles. God is about to raise up children from Abraham, and the axe is coming down, sadly, to the Jewish religion and to the leaders of the Jewish religion. The axe is already at the root, and God is about to raise up a new people of God. That's what's being said here in short. And so you can see the defense that was so common, even John the Baptist knew it. You don't say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. If you remember John chapter 8, there's a, there's a debate going on with Jesus. And, and they're like, where is your father? God is our father. And they say, we are the children of Abraham. And then he says, listen, if you were from Abraham, you'd listen to me. He saw my day. Wait a minute. You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And you remember, before Abraham was... I am, right? Mic drop. And they pick up stones to destroy him, and he slides through their midst, unharmed. And so what's going on here? It's not about being Jewish that saves you. It's about being chosen by God, ultimately. That's the argument of this text. Now, he's going to move in verse 10 to another illustration. So we had Isaac and Ishmael, and the argument could be, well, okay, Hagar was an Egyptian. She was a servant. Sarah was you know, married to Abraham, and that's why she, Isaac was chosen. And so Paul says, okay, I'm going to now choose an illustration that no one can argue with. Because Rebecca had two children and they were twins. And they came out of the same womb and had the same mother and had the same father. And God chooses one and not the other. So that's where he moves now in verse 10. So let's move there. Not only so, but also when Rebecca who's married to Isaac, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. Now, this is, this is important, friends. Listen. He says, before they were born or had done anything, either good or bad, what? In order that God's purpose See here, this is about God and his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose of election might continue. In other words, so that God can be God and make the choices he wants to make and that his will will prevail. Not because of works. Now, we know he's talking about salvation here for many reasons. This is one of them. All through the letter of Romans... Paul argues that we are saved by faith and not by what? Works. So he must be talking about the salvation of individuals here because 
he contrasts God's electing purposes with the works of the individuals. And he says, what is their election based on? Not on their works. Why? Because God's choosing them was before they were even born or had done anything good or bad. She was told, who's that? That's Rebecca. She was told the older will serve, I'm sorry, the younger, <laughs> the older will serve the younger. And what, what is traditional in Jewish culture was the older gets the inheritance, the bulk of it. The older is the one who's uh, over the other siblings and God reverses the order. He says, no, it's the younger one who I'm going to choose, not the older one. And you remember how that story plays out. Esau's out in the field. Uh, By the way, Esau's a funny character. They're born at the same time, and Esau comes out all hairy and red. He's He's like Chewbacca, but with bright red hair. And interestingly, Jacob comes out grabbing on his heel right out of the womb, like holding on to him. And interestingly, Esau becomes this man of the field. He's a hunter. He's a man's man. He carries knives in his pocket and guns all the time. And he's got an extra clip in his back pocket constantly. He's that type of dude. Okay. I'm not making fun of those types of dudes. It's just that read the Bible. It'll tell you that's the type of dude he was. And so he's out in the field hunting and Jacob is a man of the home. He likes to do dishes and listen, I like to paint, but he liked to paint too. All right. <laughs> I'm not making fun of those who paint. I've, I've, I've had many a, a time where I've had to take the nail polish to the hands from the spray paint. All right, So I'm not hating on painters here. Jacob liked to be at home. He didn't like the field. Okay? And he's home making food. And Esau comes in starving. And he's like, give me some of that red stuff in that pot right there. And he's like, listen, give me your birthright. And I'll give you some of it. He's like, what is a birthright? I'm about to die. Take it. And he sells his birthright for a bowl of Panera, broccoli and cheddar. Are you kidding me? It shows how much he liked or cared about his birthright. And so that's how the older came to serve the younger. Yeah, Jacob tricked him. And so interestingly, even though God chose Jacob, it says here in the text, they've done nothing good or bad. Jacob was a trickster. He was shady. Like his middle name was Shady, and he was constantly lying and constantly tricking. He was a trickster. And, and even in that, God chooses him that the line of promise should come through. Isn't that interesting? It's not about works. It's about God's choosing. It's not about who's more righteous or unrighteous. It's about God's choosing. And that's his argument here. Now, he goes on to say, well, let's, let's look at the, I got, I got some time to do this. All right, good. So here, here's the text. Again, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Uh, she was listening at the tent door. Is anything too hard for you? That's not the one. I'm sorry. Here it is. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived, again, another miraculous birth. She can't have children. He prays, and she has children. You, you notice this kind of miraculous birth happening over and over. It's kind of a theme. And then Jesus comes along in John 3 and says, hey, you know what? You must be born again. How does that work? Well, it's like the wind. 
you can see its effects, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, it's miraculous and you don't control it. It's a theme running throughout the scriptures. This kind of barren and needing miraculous birth. And so it is today. If we are going to become children of God, we must be born miraculously by God's doing. And the wind in John 3, the word pneuma, it's the same word in Greek for spirit. And so he's saying, you must be born by the will of the spirit and the spirit blows where it wishes. You can't tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the wind or the spirit. The will of the wind is its own. And so here, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Can you imagine that having like all kind of terrible birth pains and that's what you say? If it is thus, why is this happening to me? What a strange thing to say. So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so Rebecca's having terrible turmoil inside of her body from pregnancy. It's like the twins are wrestling with each other inside of her. It's this miraculous birth. Why is this happening to me? And God's answer is, you have two nations at war within you. And see, this, this gives us a picture of how God sees people. He doesn't just see them as individuals like we do. He sees what flows from them and from their relationships. Generations and generations and generations to come. And yet he is in control of all of it. And so this is what's happening in Romans 9, 6 to 13. Though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau, I'm sorry, uh, yes, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born or had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, the most controversial text in this whole section is verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, now what this seems to be saying is that God has nothing but love for Jacob and nothing but hate for Esau. And so we need to do some work here, and I'm glad we have a bit of time to do it. We know that what is being argued here is individual election for salvation and not only God's purpose in nations that will come from these two boys. Now, from Esau comes the Edomites, and they were not friendly with the descendants of Jacob, who were who? the Israelites. And so God's 
prophecy is true, that there are two warring nations within you. Now, I want to ask you to pay attention, okay? You with me? All right. This is coming from Malachi 1, 3 to 4. You see the quotes there? As it is written means Paul is quoting something from the Old Testament. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He is quoting Malachi 1, 3, and 4. And here's what it says. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, this is way past when these two boys have died. Their descendants have become nations, Edom and Israel. And so he's speaking of the Edomites here, and he says, I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country, the people within whom the Lord is angry forever. It's a little harsh. Now, what's going on here is God is, through Malachi, talking about the nations of Israel and Edom. And so if we're not careful here, what we could say is, okay, well, he's quoting from Malachi where nations are being mentioned. And so therefore, in Romans 9, it's just talking about nations. You see? Look how he quotes it. As it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But in the context of Malachi, it's nations. So therefore, it's not individuals being spoken of here. It's just nations. Okay? Now that is a somewhat powerful argument. But I'm not with that argument. And here's why. Starting in Romans... Now listen, friends, when you're interpreting the Bible, this is the chief hermeneutic. What's a hermeneutic? It's not something you order at Denny's. A hermeneutic is the art and science of biblical interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? It is an ancient text. It is very complex. There's hyperlinks that go all throughout the whole of the text. How in the world do we interpret this ancient book? Here's the number one chief key. Ready? Context, context, context. All caps, context is king. Remember, Romans 8, starting in verse 28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Then Paul launches, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And then he goes on to say, and those who are in that line of foreknowing, predestination, called, justified, they will be glorified. And nothing in all creation can separate them from God. Then we get to Romans chapter 9. And he deals with what's happening with the people of Israel. There are 
individuals within the nation of Israel who believe in Jesus. Friends, have you read Acts chapter 1 and 2? Do you remember that the very first church was the 120 in the upper room? What ethnicity were they? They were Jewish. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon a Jewish church. And they spoke to the nations who were also Jewish, who were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, and 3,000 believed, yes, from different languages, yes, from different cultures, from all over the Mediterranean world, but what ethnicity were they primarily? Jewish. And so these are the Israel within the larger Israel. This is what God is doing. So it's not that there are no Jewish people who believe. There are many. All the apostles were Jewish. Jesus himself, as we learned last week, was Jewish and God overall, who is forever blessed. Amen. And so here he is. Remember, context, context, context. Remember, that's what we were doing. Okay, so in context, he is speaking about individuals. Then he talks about the the Jewish people. But remember, it's Israel within Israel, Jewish individuals within the larger Israel. And then he starts to name individuals here. He starts to name Abraham, and he names Sarah, and he names Rebecca, and he names Isaac, and he names Ishmael. Okay? He's dealing here in context with not groups of people, but individuals. And listen, it would be very strange for Paul to, out of nowhere, take a turn and go nations on us. Especially, listen, friends, especially because of verse 11. Look at 11 with me. Remember, I asked you to pay attention. You still paying attention? All right. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born or had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might, stand, might continue, remember, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Remember, Romans 8 talks about foreknowing, predestining, and then what? Calling. There are no chapter divisions in the original letter to the Romans. When, you, when the original hearers heard not by works, they're thinking back to chapter 3. They're thinking back to chapter 4. When they hear calling, they're thinking to the paragraph right before this. Paul's not going to all of a sudden change the whole context up and start talking about nations all of a sudden. So what in the world can we figure out from Malachi then? And here's the answer. Paul is using the nations as a type. Okay? A type. Here's what I mean by that. We, we talk about people as either introverts or extroverts. We're like, yeah, he's, a, he's one of those rowdy types. And we all know what that means. Like, he's one of those loud ones. We all know what that means. We're, we're, we're making types out of people. They're a hermit. And we all know what that means when we say that. Like they like to be inside their room and they like to have their food slid under the door and they don't like to come outside. That's a type. Okay? And that would be a very, very capital H hermit there. Okay? If you can't even receive your food, you're hermiting hardcore. Okay? That's what Paul's doing here. He's using the Malachi text as a type 
to show the individual nature of God's choosing in verse 12 and 13. Jacob and not Esau. Now, now we have to deal with, what does it mean that God hated Esau? What does it mean that God hated Esau? Well, I used to believe that the hated meant loved less. And there's actually good warrant for believing that. There is actual textual warrant for believing that the hated means loved less. Uh, Here's one text we could look at. It's Luke 14, 25 to 26. Jesus uh, is speaking here. Great crowds accompanied him. He turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we hear, these are called the hard sayings of Jesus. And when you hear that, you're like, wait a minute. I know the greatest commandment. Isn't it to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And then isn't the second like it to love your neighbor as, my, as yourself? Wouldn't my father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister be my neighbor? So he can't be talking about actually hating, can he? It's impossible. We, we know that God is love. And so God, listen, friends, is never filled with dark hatred, maliciousness in the sinful sense. God forbid. Now, does God hate? Absolutely. He hates sin. He hates darkness. He hates what sin does to people. And yes, God has intense anger towards sinful people. He does. This is what hell is, friends. That's why John the Baptist said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There is coming wrath. God will have his vengeance. He will have his justice. And so again, what I used to think was, okay, it just means loved less. Okay. There's another text. Um, You remember uh, Rachel and Leah. Do you remember that? Jacob was tricked by Laban. Uh, Rachel's father. Do you remember that? And so Leah was uh, uh, the wife who was unloved. And the Bible in Genesis literally says that Leah was hated. But she clearly was not hated. But the way that Jacob loved Rachel and not Leah looked like hate. And in the same way here, the way we love God should look like hate, quote-unquote, compared to our earthly relationships. Okay? And so, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I don't think it means that. Okay? Here's what I think it actually means. And, And again, the context is the key. What I think it means is, God chose Jacob as an individual to be in the line of promise. He chose him also for salvation, but Esau, he rejected. And so the hated is in the sense of rejection and as the theologians would say, being passed over. 
to receive God's mercy and grace. So hated, I think, means rejection. Here's Doug Moo. He's a, he's a Roman scholar I really respect. I read a lot of scholars on Romans. A lot. Okay? And you'll find a wide variety of answers to this verse 13 of Romans 9. I think Doug Moo is right on. Here's what he says. He, Paul, is arguing that God in his own day is bringing into being a covenant people in the same way he did in the days of the patriarchs by choosing some and rejecting others. Let me read that again. Listen close. He, Paul, Romans 8, or I'm sorry, 9.13, is arguing that God in his own day, Paul's day, is bringing into being a covenant people in the same way he did in the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by choosing some and rejecting others. Doug continues, If God's love of Jacob consists in his choosing Jacob to be the seed who would inherit the blessed promises of Abraham, then God's hatred of Esau is best understood to refer to God's decision not to bestow this privilege on Esau. It might best be translated rejected. Love and hate are not here then emotions that God feels, but actions that he carries out. Not emotions, but actions. In an apparent paradox that troubles Paul, as well as many Christians, God loves the whole world, and at the same time, he withholds his love in action or election from some. Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Here's the question about John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Who is the whoever? Whoever believes. Who is the whoever? It's the ones God has chosen, friends. Now, the, the truth is, if anyone believes, they will be saved. And so, if you believe what the Bible is teaching here, you don't have to throw out John 3.16. You can proclaim it. You can say to people, if you will believe, God will save you. Is it true? Yeah. How do we know that's true? Because many texts, I think of one, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, uh, you know, he, he says to Paul, brothers, what must I do to be saved? What's the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And you remember that he and his household are baptized that very night. So what could we say about the Philippian jailer? He was elect. He was loved in this sense. Friend, what about you? Let's bring it home. Where are you at tonight? There is a mystery here. The mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
We mentioned John 3.16. It does say, whoever believes. In other words, you really do have to believe. Now, as we argued in previous sermons, belief is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith or belief. And this is not of your own doing. It's not of my own doing. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. Faith and belief is a gift from God so that no one can boast. I believe and you don't. I'm better than you. No. God cuts that option out. If you believe, it's a gift so that no one can boast. However, here's the paradox, friends. What is a paradox? A paradox is a seeming contradiction. Just seems like one, but it's not. Here's the seeming contradiction. God gifts belief, but you know what you have to exercise? The gift of belief. So so what am I saying? Friends, if you're here tonight and you want to believe in Jesus for salvation, for eternity with him, for full and free forgiveness of sins. You know what you should do? You should believe. You should trust in Jesus for the salvation of your soul. You should tonight trust in Jesus that he will save you from the wrath to come, which is do all of your sins and all of my sins. Friends, you know what God owes us? If we want to talk justice, you know what he owes us? Punishment for all our sin. Every human being. And so here's, here's the picture. It's not as though humanity is neutral. And God is out of this neutrality, neither good nor bad, choosing some and then passing over or rejecting others. No, that's not... It's not the deal. The deal is we are all fallen, broken, rejecting God as a whole. And out of that fallen humanity, God chooses some to be saved. And now you're like, well, wait a minute. Didn't we just talk about that happening before the foundation of the world? Yes, but it has to be in view of the fall or what do you need saved from? Get me? If we need saved from sin, then sin has to be in the picture. Or what do you need saved from? And so God sees all of humanity before the creation of any of them in their sin, deserving his wrath, deserving his punishment. And he says, I will show mercy and grace on you. I will show mercy and grace on you. I will show mercy on grace on you and you. And then to some, he says, I will let you have it your way. I will let you reject me. I will let you spit in my face. I will let you stiff arm me. I will let you sin your way into judgment until you die. And then I will right every wrong that you have caused. And no one is done wrong by God, friends. Do you realize that? By God giving some justice, or in other words, letting them pay for their sins, is he wronging them? Not at all. 
We're, in a, we're a justice-obsessed culture. You should be okay with that. See, we like justice when it's not aimed at us. And then when it's aimed at us, we're like, mercy, have mercy on me. And friends, this is the truth. If you will but call out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner, do you know what he will do? He will have mercy on you. This is the, this is the paradox of belief in election. If you want to believe to be saved, you should believe tonight. Don't wait another day. Go through the door that is Jesus. And on the other side is full and free forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And when you go through the door, you'll close it, you'll turn around, and above the door, inscribed in gold, it will say, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Yet you have to go through that door, friends. God's not going to go through it for you. You have to walk out your election. Yeah, I'm speaking in really blunt terms here. So is Paul. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Friends, here's our responsibility. One, you need to believe. Don't play with God. Don't play the, well, what if I'm not elect game. Don't play that game. You're not responsible to figure out your election or anyone else's. You're responsible to believe and walk according to God's revealed will. Because Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, not to you, <laughs> not to me. So we should never assume we can tell who the elect are. No. Rather, we should assume everyone's elect and call them to believe. Because how do you know? Salvation belongs to the Lord. But your responsibility, if you're here tonight or you're watching this online, your responsibility is to believe. To turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Now, we're out of time. I have more text, but we're not going to do that, okay? We're going to end it there. Now, listen. If you're like, that's not enough. I want more. Just come back next week. Because Paul seemingly digs a deeper hole next week. And I will do my best to explain it to you. But for now, we're going to put this sermon to rest. Friends, if you are believing in Jesus today, tonight, you are the children of God. And you get to celebrate along with all the other children of God that Jesus had paid for your sins. His body broken, his blood shed. This is why we take communion every single week. We celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Before the foundation of the world, for 
foreknown, predestined, in time and space, he called you to himself that you might believe. He justified you and he will glorify you. And we take communion to celebrate the means by which God saves us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God loves us so much that he sent his son to die as a substitute in our place that we might have full and free forgiveness. Your responsibility is to believe and trust that what Jesus did was for you and you trust him alone that he will save you from your sins. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to step off. We're going to sing a gospel song together. So if you could stand up. So for some of you, tonight was maybe affirming what you already believe. For some of you, this maybe upset you. Uh, For some of you, this is brand new and you don't know what to do with it. You're just confused. I want to respect where everyone's journey is at and offer pastoral love and support and say, I will talk with any of you who have questions about anything I said tonight. I'd be happy to sit down with you. I'd be happy to recommend other resources. I'd be happy to buy you a coffee or a meal and we could talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. Okay? So please don't walk out of here and say, this is a terrible church. I'm never coming back here again. All I did was read through Romans 9, 6 to 13, and tried to explain it as clearly as I could. Okay? There are hard things in the Bible. And the reason we at Eternal City go verse by verse by verse without skipping any is because even in my looking for sermons to reference, nobody preaches on Romans 9. (laughs) Even some of my favorite Bible scholars, they just skip it. I'm like, man, come on. Now, let us worship. We worship a living Savior, not a dead one. And Gabriel the angel prophesied to his adopted father, Joseph, you will call him Jesus. Why? Because he will, not might, not make it possible. He will save his people from their sins. He will do it. And that's why you are to call him Jesus. Friends, you hold in your hands a representation of the means by which God saves us from all of our sins. Jesus' body broken, Jesus' blood shed. And by you taking it, you're saying, This was not just in general for all humanity, for whosoever. No, for me. He did this for me. That's why you take communion. And by us doing it together, we say he did it for his church. We as living stones together. Individuals, yet a part of a bigger whole. And this is why we celebrate communion together as one church. Because God is saving a people. A chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Us. Jesus' body broken and bloodshed is the means. So let's worship by taking the symbol of Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us together. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace. Father, we were running from you and you came after us. It's not that we chose you, but you chose us. Father, we worship you and thank you that you have loved us in this way. Father, I pray that we would not just stay in our comfortable position, but we would tell others the good news, which is the power unto salvation for everyone who believes. God, would we tell others the good news and urge them to believe? And God, would you do what only you can do in calling them and giving them the gift of faith and belief? Father, we thank you that we get to celebrate tonight that we are your children. God, may it not be lost on us. May we not see it as second to anything else. May your grace and mercy and love be primary in our thinking. We thank you for Jesus in our place, Father, our only hope. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.